You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. I would like to begin by paying my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which I am coming to you from today. Land where at brainwaves we tell our stories and land where the traditional custodians have told their stories for many, many years before us, and continue to tell their stories. I would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present, and acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners who are listening today. Hello and welcome to Brainwaves on 3CR, 855am on your dial, app or digitally. My name is Flick Manning. Brainwaves is a mental health focused show with a lived experience lens. We like to talk to those living with, caring for, or treating those with mental illnesses and everyone in between. My guest today is Neil Hunter. Neil has been a management consultant who has worked in the public and private sector for 53 years. While it's almost 11 years since suffering his heart attack, Neil has continued to work and lead a normal life, even with the physical and mental issues that this event has had on his life. Neil wants to make it clear that he's just an ordinary person, And just because he has survived a near-death experience, he does not want to be seen or be treated as someone different or special. What it has done, though, has given him a lived experience about surviving a traumatic event. And he hopes that by being able to share this, it may help others who have or may experience trauma in their lives in whatever form this takes. I also wanted to take a little side note here to advise that Neil is actually also my dad. And getting to interview him about this important topic is a unique privilege for me. Now, my dad and I have always had a close bond and a special way that we communicate with each other. And I am his youngest child. So despite me being nearly 40, he often still refers to me as baby or sweetie. And I often refer to him as dad or daddy. Because we are all about authenticity on this show, we'll likely switch naturally between all of these names. And we hope that this gives everyone listening today a feel for how we are able to chat about these things and for how we are together. So without further ado... Neil, aka Dad, welcome to the show. Hi, sweetie. Thank you for having me. (laughs) It's a pleasure. So we've got a lot to talk about, so we're going to just jump straight in. Now, how would you describe your mental health prior to your heart attack? I would have thought uh, I had a reasonable mental health. I I guess over the course of my years, I have suffered from anxiety, and I guess that's been somewhat probably driven by my fear of failure. It's something I've always had seemingly even back to my primary school days but I certainly you know it was manageable it never impacted my life I certainly didn't have any panic attacks but I guess I was always very focused on achieving in other words I really wanted to achieve 100% for everything and not achieving that was not acceptable to me so I guess there was some anxiety attached to that but from a mental health perspective I actually felt vertical was quite normal yeah I can remember probably thinking back now that there was definitely, you know, you were you were fairly highly focused, as you said, on being very sort of successful or achieving uh, something in anything that you put your mind to. I can remember that very clearly, even as a child. But you were also sort of a real go getter, and I would say a bit of an adrenaline junkie. Is that fair to say? That would be fair to say. Always very physically active, wanting to have you know give everything a go within reason. Yeah. And there are differences in how mental health is treated. I think, you know, still we see that between if we're looking at genders in that binary term and how genders and generations treat mental health. Do you think that this played a role in 
first of all, recognizing any signs of mental health, but then also the coping strategies you may have had for things like stress in the years leading up to your heart attack? Mm, it's an interesting question, sweetie, and I guess we're all products of our time. You know, being born in 1953, it was an era uh, before then and, and for some time afterwards, and to some extent still exists today, where the male of the species was always meant to be the strong one, the one that would never show any emotion, had to be there resilient if everything was falling around them. They were the ones that still had to stand up and be the, the rock of Gibraltar, so as to speak. And I guess I was very much, I had that very much, that was my attitude, and to some extent still probably is. So I guess as, you know, dealing, coming back to your earlier question about uh, my mental health uh, prior to my heart attack, Yes, I did have anxiety. I I guess I tried to hide that and develop all sorts of coping mechanisms to do exactly that. And I guess even post my heart attack, when I guess the mental health side of that really kicked in, there was always an element of me either denying it or wanting to hide it. So I, yeah, to me, I still had to be the strong person in the organisation, the, the dad that never that never panicked about anything, all those sorts of things, yep. And would you say, like, would you describe what some of those, you know, coping mechanisms that you talked about sort of developing, I guess, that hiding aspect of it? What do you think some of those things might have presented themselves as prior to your heart attack? I guess always going at everything at 100 mile an hour and taking everything on and, in a sense, not showing any sign of weakness that you've got to keep going. One of the things I did do a lot of, and it was only something that I revealed to your <clears throat> your mum some years ago, is I've always loved driving. And I would constantly uh, get in the car and just drive somewhere. And it would be at times when, you know, I was come, meant to be coming home from work or I was doing, I was, you know, it was lunchtime or something during the day when obviously I was working in the city at the time. So I would drive a lot and that was my kind of, my cathartic means of kind of get it out, getting it out of the system. And I guess in some respects, I look back, I was probably, I could have driven, I used to go out to the uh, wheat belt, which is, you know, about 100k so east of Perth. And at times I would suggest I probably was a bit reckless with my driving because that was my way of thinking, well, if something happens, so be it. But, you know, I'd, I'd, as soon as I turned to come home, I'd sort of think, yeah, I've kind of got that out of my system. And I would do that a lot. And it was something that you folk, my, you know, you and your big sister Kelly and mum probably never knew about. But that was just one of the things I coped with. And as you, you probably recall, I used to run most lunch times and I'd run with a group of fellas. And I look back greatly on that particular time. But that was also part of that release mechanism that you get out, just physically drive yourself um, to try and stay on top of it. Yeah, I recall you telling us about that, you know, in the years post having had your heart attack and me being so surprised that that was one of the things that you were doing. I, I knew that driving was a really big part of how you kind of got your mind centred and you're very yeah. passionate about cars and you've always been very passionate about driving, something that you certainly passed down to me, I think. Yeah. Uh, and I, I do find driving can be quite cathartic too, but to sort of the extent in which you were doing it and I guess the mental process you were going through, I don't think any of us had an awareness of. And like you said, that feeds back into that idea of being the strong dad and not showing anything. And there's probably a lot of people of your generation that may have developed similar coping skills or ways to kind of cover up what they're feeling. So thank you for sharing that. Can you take us through what was going through your mind actually at the time of your heart attack? You know, that moment when you recognize something here is 
really not right. It's always been an interesting question, I guess, right up until uh, when it was when I was getting the symptoms. I it never even entered my psyche or my mind in one split second that I was having a heart attack. I, I guess it was late at night. I was lying on the lounge watching TV. I started to get pain, uh, like cramping feeling across my collarbones. And I just thought, hmm, that's unusual because the day before I'd been at the football, I'd been running around with my mates kicking the footy. I just assumed I'd strained a muscle or something like that. And it stayed with me for five or ten minutes and then it eased off. And I thought, hmm, that was unusual. Anyway, um, at about that time, your mum was heading off to bed and I was still watching TV and it, and it came back. And this time it came back stronger and I started to get symptoms down both of my arms and I started to sweat profusely. So here we're talking um, April, so it's not exactly summertime and it was that by this stage about 11 o'clock at night, so there was no reason for me to be sweating, but it was pouring off me. And I started to feel a touch lightheaded and that's when I went into the bedroom and your mum looked at me and she said, you all right? I said, no, something's not right here. And I think she said hospital and I said, yeah, I think so. So we jumped in the car and drove down to what was called Swan District's Hospital and it was not even then, not even occurred to me that I'd be having a heart attack. I get into the hospital, the triage nurse takes me straight in, hogs me up with an ECG, comes back about two or three minutes later and says, you're having a heart attack. And I, if I hadn't, wasn't already lying down, I would have fallen down. And I, I still couldn't believe it because it's like, this can't be happening to me. Surely not. All the things I've done in my life, it can't be happening to me. And I knew it became serious at that point when it was, uh, yeah, we're getting an ambulance, we're taking it to Royal Perth Hospital. And as soon as they bundled the ambulance, I heard the lights and the sirens start up. And then I thought, oh, gee, this is serious. And so that was kind of, and even, you know, it was still then, I just couldn't think I was having a heart attack. It wasn't possible. Not me, no. Yeah, that must have been such a shock. And also, you know, probably uh, in some ways may have added, I would think, potentially to, to some of the feelings that may have actually occurred after the heart attack. I think, you know, I when we speak about a traumatic experience in the body, often it's that shock, that realisation that this life-changing thing has happened to you. It, yeah. it alters so much about how you actually feel about yourself, really, and we'll certainly get into that. But again, thank you for sharing that because I know that's not always the easiest thing for people to actually talk about. So as we were just starting to discuss, when there is a large physical trauma, something like a heart attack, or maybe you've discovered that you've got a chronic condition for the first time, whatever it is that's going on, mental health is often involved or triggered, and it can alter a person's connection to themselves, their sense of identity. Did your heart attack change how you felt in your body and mind, uh, the relationship even that you had with your body and mind? And if so, in what ways? Oh, substantially, sweetie, because Prior to my heart attack, I'd lived, as you know, I would go running every day. I I lived a, what I thought was a, a pretty clean sort of lifestyle in terms of, you know, what I ate and exercised and etc. I mean, prior to my heart attack, I never had a you know, I get all the routine blood tests annually. I never had high cholesterol. I never had high blood pressure. None of those things. So when, of course, when I end up suffering a heart attack, my whole thought about my body just collapsed because it was like, well, I've done, you know, everything in my life to immunize myself against a heart attack and now I've had one. So my body's let me down and it's like I've gone from someone that would think nothing of running 20 kilometers 
to someone that would panic at the thought of walking to the letterbox. And so it was a complete contrast. It was like bookended my whole, my body was now in sort of two completely different phases where I, I felt post my heart attack that I had to wrap myself up in cotton wool and not do any exertion at all in case I raised my heartbeat and my heart would fail me. So, you know, for me, it completely changed how I thought about my body and how I could use it. Whereas before, I'd, as I said, I would never bat an eyelid at doing anything physically. The, 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 bit, the harder the physical challenge, the more excited I got. And now I, I get, you know, frightened about, well, back then I got frightened, as I said earlier, about doing anything that would raise my heartbeat above what's considered the normal heart rate. Yeah, there's a very commonly seems to be a, a feeling of betrayal that one sort of gets between themselves and their body when there is like a big physical trauma like that, this sense that like cause and effect, I've done all the right things, so therefore this bad thing shouldn't happen to me. And so it's very linear and unfortunately the reality with human bodies is that's not always the case. There's a, there's a lot of stuff going on that you just don't know about underneath the surface mm. sometimes, mm. so that can be really really confronting. What have you specifically struggled with, I guess, from a mental health point of view since your heart attack? Well, I guess it's that sense of vulnerability. Um, I considered myself somewhat bulletproof and now I'm thinking, well, actually, I'm, I've got a, I've got a weak body. It's, it's let me down or I've let it down one or the other. So, you know, things, as I mentioned to you earlier, I now, I got to the point of, I'd sort of calculate everything I was about to do because I didn't want to put any strain on my heart. That's That was how I treated things initially at to the stage that um, I'd almost do nothing and I didn't want to have another heart attack. This this will sound really strange and I'll mention this to you but to your listeners, I don't have a fear of dying but I have a fear of another heart attack and I know that sounds absolutely stupid but I didn't want to do anything physically that would bring on another heart attack. So yeah, it just changed in those initial years uh, post my heart attack it, until I got some some help and, and some guidance. It, it completely changed how I was living my life. Yeah, I think I remember coming home, Maybe I think it was only a few weeks maybe after you'd actually had your heart attack. And uh, for those listening at home, we do live in different states. So when this happened to dad, I was based on the East Coast, he was on the West Coast. And I remember sort of thinking, I need to book a flight and get home. Certainly at the time, you were not as forthcoming with your emotional and mental state with me. So I physically needed to put eyes on you to kind of know where you're at. And I remember looking at you driving in the car and thinking, gosh, the wind's really been knocked out of your sails. And that does make total sense. But sort of like my dad had gone from a total, as I said, adrenaline junkie earlier, like whitewater rafting and, you know, you name it, if it's something that he's got to jump off something out of something into something that's definitely had dad's name all over it to sort of... I could see that your world had shrunk down to being sort of this small bubble around you and that that was a really claustrophobic perhaps place for you mm. to exist. So I can definitely recognise what you're saying from that perspective of seeing it. Now also, uh, people often experience a lot of physical symptoms alongside their mental health ones, especially after a trauma like that. You know, things like panic attacks, uh, different types of stress reactions, things like nausea, headache and dizziness. Is this something that you've experienced yourself? And if so, how do you take yourself through that mental process of trying to calm down? Well, it's interesting because one of your very first questions, sweetie, was about um, what was my mental health state prior to the heart attack. And I made the comment that I, while well, I was anxious 
and, and but that was self-driven by fear of failure. Uh, I'd never had a, well, to my knowledge, I'd never had a panic attack. Well, I was now entering a whole new world. And not long after my heart attack coming home, I experienced what was, I guess, my first panic attack. And it actually felt like having another heart attack. And as I said to you just a few minutes ago, I don't fear dying, but I feared having another heart attack. And suddenly I'm having this panic attack, which I subsequently turned out was a panic attack. But I actually thought it was another heart attack because, you know, my heart rate increased. I was sweating. I felt lightheaded. Um, my muscles all felt weak. I mean, suddenly it's like, oh, here we go. I've just come out of hospital. I'm going back through this again. It's all so. Um, yes, for me, that that whole panic attack thing, and I didn't know how to deal with it because I ne- I don't recall ever having one. And like, thankfully, you know, your mum was here and she worked at a doctor's surgery and she talked about people coming into the surgery who presented with panic attacks. And the more she discussed that. Um, the symptoms, the more I was ticking those boxes. So it kind of made me feel a little better. And I, I guess I got through that. But, you know, um, other things as the months and years went past would trigger more of the of those panic attacks. And for me, every ailment in my body, whether I have a sore toe, a headache, or anything on any part of my body, every road leads back to my heart. So I might get an ache in my little, little toe on my left foot somehow that's heart related you know i could have a nosebleed oh that's heart related so i'd get this constant fear of having another heart attack so it wasn't until um, some years later that i sought some professional help and that's given me some mechanisms to cope with panic attacks certainly doesn't stop them because anything can trigger it anything a smell a sound a feeling a missed heartbeat because you know, one of the outcomes of my heart attack was physical damage to the heart muscle itself. Now that's given me, uh, you know, I'm, I skip a heartbeat every now and then. I used to initially just, I was constantly feeling my pulse, waiting for that missed heartbeat. There it is again. Oh my God, I'm going to have another heart attack. And oh, there's another one. And it was interesting that, yes, I did go for a heart monitor and it showed that on average, each day I would have 40 to 50 missed heartbeats. And the person I was, the professional person I was dealing with, and still am, um, he said to me one day, he said, you know, Neil, he said, I've done a quick calculation that since your heart attack, you've had 242,000 missed heartbeats, and you're, st- and you're still here. And I went like it was a light bulb moment. It's like, because I was waiting for every single heartbeat to be missed as a sign that I, I wasn't well, that it was all over. And when you put it in that context, it's like, well, if I've survived 242,000, what's one more? And his mechanism to me was, I was spending all of my time trying to suppress the symptoms I was having rather than actually facing them. So in other words, he said to me, you've got to acknowledge that you've got a missing heartbeat. So when you get one, if you feel it, he'd say to me, acknowledge it, note it, let's move on rather than acknowledge it, note it, panic. So that was that kind of mechanism. Suddenly I've gone from, I'm doing everything to, I won't, I won't exert myself in any way because it'll only increase my heart rate naturally. <laughs> exercise, yeah, but increase your heart rate. Therefore, if I don't exercise, I won't increase my heart rate. I won't have as many missed heartbeats. And everything will be wonderful. Well, you can't live your life like that. But that's how I was living it because I was just trying to avoid it rather than as he said to me you've actually just got to face it 
you've got you've got a missing heartbeat. It's a fact. And after two hundred and forty-two thousand missed heartbeats, and it's obviously been a lot more since then because that was he gave me the advice some years ago. I'm still here. I'm still talking to you. So it's just that whole way of dealing. Now coming back to the other part of your question, like yes, I still get panic attacks occasionally, and some of them are not nice. Some of them are quite horrible. I was away only recently, and Mum and I were just driving down south, and I just I don't know what triggered it, but I got a, a panic attack. I actually had to stop the car get out and I paced up and down the road it was a, a quiet country road there was no other cars until I just calmed myself down got back in the car and just started driving and yes there was several hours after that where I still felt really shaken up but you just get through it and I keep saying to myself that comment um, that the, the person told me to do acknowledge it note it move on and then try and divert your, your thoughts towards, I started talking to mum about some home improvements we're doing. Before I knew it, an hour had gone past and I'm thinking, okay, I'm still there, I'm still driving, we're still chatting, yet kind of got over it. But yes, I still get them, but but I that's how I try and deal with them. Thank you for sharing that. And it's actually interesting, the, the comment that obviously that person made to you is very in line with a lot of mindfulness techniques mm, that actually yes. teach you to do exactly that, to note it, to acknowledge it, to move on and then to divert because often it's very that we sort of get stuck in a loop uh, particularly yep. when it's a trauma response and as you said there's so many triggers for that because the brain takes in so much information in a traumatic event uh, but yeah again that's that's a wonderful piece of advice for anyone listening that's whether it's panic attacks or just any kind of reaction that they're having mm-hmm. so dad you've not always been as open and comfortable talking about your health particularly your mental health as you certainly are now what would you say has changed to make it in an easier or more comfortable flow of conversation for you? It depends on who the audience and the context in which you're in. I mean, there are still many people that I interact with quite regularly from a from a work or business perspective, and even some of my friends, maybe not so close friends, that probably wouldn't even be aware that I've had a heart attack. And I've chosen not to tell them only because it's well, it's obviously personal to me. I sh- I've certainly shared it with my family and some of my immediate and best friends and some of my immediate and closest people I work with. But I, I'm sort of guarded about telling too many people about it simply because, as you know, when you're talking about invisible um, illness, people might look at you differently. And I think, well, physically, externally, I'm just the same. I'm still the same Neil Hunter okay, I've got a ticker that's not, not as good as it used to be and I'm dealing with ways in which I can still lead a, a active and normal life and that that's, remains a work in progress, obviously. But I said I'm still guarded about telling some people because there's still this little bit the historic thing in me that I'm meant to be the tough one, the one that can just take it all and, and, and have this, I've got this suit of armour outside that just repels everything. So in some respects, um, I, I continue to do that. Uh, I guess I'm progressively opening up to more people, but it's not something that I get up every day and think, well, I've got to tell the whole world. Because some people just won't understand, you know, from your own experience and any of your listeners who've got an invisible illness, people just don't understand because they haven't walked your shoes. As I said, in a way, talking to you today, I'm hoping lots of people will get the message that it's okay to talk about it, I am gradually opening up that circle of people that I'm letting know. Yeah, I completely understand that. Can you just give us one last, I guess, little piece of advice that you could pass on to 
people that may be in a similar situation themselves, what's the most important thing that you could say to people listening today? Gee, that's a question I've pondered a lot. You know, they say, you often hear on the radio or TV, they can talk about some notoriety or some person, for example, has had a heart attack. And then they say, it's okay, they got to hospital in time, they're expected to make a full recovery. Well, that's, yes, that's true in one sense, but it's not. You don't make a full recovery. You make a recovery from the heart attack. But what, what they don't tell people is it's all the stuff that happens afterwards. It's the mental anguish and the anxiety. And there are still some physical symptoms that people have to deal with. I guess from a heart attack perspective, I'd say to people out there, prevention's better than cure. Go and get your checkups. No matter what, what whether it's a heart attack or your skin or whatever the case might be, go and get regular checks because, like me, I thought I was bulletproof. I wasn't. I'm human after all. So my advice to people is no matter what your situation medically, get yourself checked and do it regularly because you'll avoid going through the invisible illness that a lot of us are now dealing with. But if when you've got an invisible illness, you seek professional help and involve your immediate loved ones because they're the ones that they love you and care for you. You understand that suddenly your dad's not bulletproof and I don't think our relationship has been damaged. In fact, if anything, it's probably got better because of it. Beautiful advice, and I completely agree. I think it has actually uh, strengthened our relationship, and I think that it often does when we share these kinds of things that are our vulnerabilities with other people that we do care about. So that's very poignant advice. Well, Dad, this has been a very special time with you. Personally, I would like to say how proud I am of the mental health journey you've taken from where you were to where you are now. I know it hasn't been all fairy floss and candy canes but you've grown immeasurably and I'm grateful as a child to have been witness to some of that growth because I do think that often parents try and cover up all of the things that are going on with them but I think it's actually a beautiful gift when the children get to see them grow through that process and thank you very much and thank you for sharing your experience with our audience today. Thank you for that sweet. Uh, there's been many many positives out of my heart attack but one of the most best positive is what we've been able to do today to be interviewed by your own daughter talking about an invisible illness to help others it's just that's the pinnacle thank you well thank you i'll try not to cry now that's what i'm going to try and do guys <laughs> you can catch us here at brainwave same time same place next week as a reminder to everyone your mental health is of equal importance to your physical health so if you're yet to connect the two in harmony today please do take a moment now to take a deep inhale a lovely full exhale and shower your body and mind with the same kindness you would give to others. I look forward to chatting to you next time on Brainwaves. If you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry and depression, or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.